Welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. He has years of experience as a pastor, seminary instructor, and more. Later, you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. And this one is like a little key that opens up the great floodgates because out gushes the full stream. His 40 days of solitude have done little for him. But the true answer would have been, I was afraid of Jezebel. But he takes credit for zeal. He tries to insinuate that he's been more zealous for God than maybe God has been for himself. I'm doing more for you, Lord, than you've done. He forgets the national acknowledgement that happened on Mount Carmel that Jehovah, he was God. And perhaps he forgot that a man by the name of Obadiah had protected a hundred prophets of God. There was such a despondency, but he picks out certain facts. It's kind of colorblind. It only takes the dark tints. He accuses his countrymen, maybe trying to stir God up to vengeance. How different this weak, sinful wail over the solitude as compared to the heroic mention on Mount Carmel. And only when this courage that we saw on on Carmel where he just prays in verse 22 and God answers that prayer, that divine manifestation that's recalled now. As he's in this cave remembering the very spot where Moses had stood. The Lord passed by. But all it's verbally quoted that you can go back to Exodus 34 and 6, that the truth had been proclaimed in the words of Moses and are reinforced in the symbol of Elijah. But if the vision was a night, in verse 9 kind of insinuates, it suggests it might become even still more impressive because the fierce wind that roared among the savage peaks of the mountains or the earth that shook the wild landscape and all of the mountains reeled and the flashing flames that lighted up that landscape. If that were all the phenomena at once it is expressed in the Lord's Lordship and over all of His powers, we see that God can do anything destructive or constructive. All of these agencies are at His hand. It's symbolized in even a more vehement and disturbing form of energy. It's used in the furtherance of God's purposes. And now it's revealing what God wants to show. That Elijah's ministry was of such a sort that he now had to learn the limitations of his own work and the superiority of another type. That's mentioned here in the sound of a gentle stillness. It's the same lesson which Moses learned there when he heard that the Lord is a God full of compassion and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy and truth. It's exemplified now in Elijah. The successor of Elijah, Elisha, is 
so different in their lives. And it's reached far beyond time and it recognizes the Messiah and the prophecy, how He's come and He is slow to anger and great in His mercy. So to you, to me, God is merciful. God is caring. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we are but dust. But now... The character of who the Lord is is seen kind of in another sense. Elijah's the prophet doesn't bring any new knowledge. He hasn't uttered any far-reaching prophecies like Daniel and Ezekiel and some of the others. But he is a man that is of deepest and clearest prophecies of the gentleness of of God's highest. He is a messenger that on Horeb he saw far off the fulfilled purpose of the transfiguration. Nor is his vision exhausted in the messianic references. It contains an eternal truth for all of God's servants because the storm, the earthquake, and the fire may have been God's precursors, but they needed something to prepare the way. But gentleness is the habitation of his throne. And they that serve Him best and that are nearest Him, we serve Him with a meek heart, with a gentle heart, even among the enemies. As a nurse cherisheth her children, I think Paul says. Love is the victor. The sharpest weapons that we have as a child of God are love and lowliness. That's the lesson that Elijah didn't grasp at first. And he repeats his complaint. You saw it before, he says, I'm very jealous. As the Lord has asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He says in verse 10, I'm the one who's been jealous for you. I've been very zealous. Your children have all forsaken you. And he repeats that again. Down in verse 13, the Lord asks him again, why are you here? I've been very zealous for you. The lesson Elijah doesn't seem to get it at first. He repeats the complaint word for word. He's obstinate. And the best of us sometimes are slow to learn God's lesson. The habit of faithless gloom is not soon overcome. It's easier to get down into the pit than to struggle out. Well, there is a commission for further service. And that is what closes our scene here. It's a further rebuke to the prophet. He's being told to retrace his way, to take refuge in the desert, laying south, going east to Damascus, where he would be safe from Jezebel, still not far from the scene of all the activity. The instructions given are to go and anoint the king of Syria, and then that he should continue on, and that it says there in verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness, to Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king of Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphath, of abel Mahala, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So God has already said, you've still got a purpose. You've still got something to do. And here, God was using and turning all of these successors so that God's plan would come about. The designation of these future instruments show God's purpose was a sign that Elijah, that God's task was the foremost. Even though Elijah was drawing to a close, he reached his climax on Mount Carmel. That was the greatest thing that could 
possibly happen. You see, God's work is greater than you or I. Greater than me. It's greater than you. To anoint our successor sometimes is a, is a bitter pill. But self-importance needs to be taken down. And it's blessed to lose ourselves in gazing into God's future work and what the Lord is about to do. And when we have gone out into the fields, when we've gone out into the highways and the hedges, we see that it is God who does the work. And His fear is born out of selfishness. A lesson He very soon learns well. The commissions of Elijah's despondency kind of go in another way because they are assured Him Divine judgment was coming on the house of Ahab and of the use of the Syrian king as a rod to chastise Israel. He had thought God was too slow in avenging Israel, in avenging his own dishonored name. And he had to be taught the might of God in the spirit of gentleness. But now he learns the certainty of the punishment. And while there is a perplexity in the promise that Elisha should slay those who escaped the swords of Heziel and Jehu, it points to the merciful energy that the prophets were, not only a sword, which shall slay, but to revive and wound to heal. I have hewed them, the Lord said, by the words of my mouth. Hi, let me interrupt for just a moment and update you with some information. You can now contact us at schoolofministryresources.org or biblelandmarks.com. We also now live stream services on landmarkstockton, all one word, dot com. Or you can see us on Facebook at Landmark Missionary Baptist Church of Stockton. We look forward to hearing from you. We would love to send you information. So thank you, and back to our podcast. And finally, the revelation, verse 17, And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, when you think you're all alone, there's 7,000. 7,000, a round number that expresses the sacredness of faithful Israel, the hidden ones. God rebukes Elijah's assumption of being there alone, faithful among the faithless. God had more servants than we know. We need to beware. Beware of feeding either our self-righteousness or our narrowness of faint-heartedness to not see that God is the one who is doing the work, not to see that we, we are not alone. We're not left alone as the witness for God. And he asked the question, what are you doing here? Let's look at the Spirit. Where do I turn? What do I like to do? Who are my chosen companions? What are my recreations? Is my life of such a sort that the world would point to me and say, What? <laughs> You're a professing Christian? What are you doing here? Sylvia and I watched a documentary about Spurgeon recently. And it was interesting because as a young man, it told the story. He was staying with his grandfather, who was a pastor of a little country church. 
there was a very prominent member of that church who had the habit of going into the public house. The same small boy, Spurgeon as a child, steps into that pub, that public house, steps up to this man who's an inconsistent man. He's sitting and he walks up to him and he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, it made the point. And it was the turning point in that man's life. That's the question that we ask ourselves wherever we go. What are we doing here? What sort of lives do we live in the moments when our voluntary choice determines our actions? What are we doing here? Man is known by the company he keeps, the old Latin proverb says. And I'm bound to say that I don't think it's a good sign of the depth of this Christian professor's religion if he feels more at home in the company of people who do not share his religion than in the company of those that do. Such was that man. And so we need to recognize that as Christ's servants, we have more in common with the brethren, but yet we are to be carrying out, we are to be carrying out the work that God has commissioned us. We don't need to fear you see, Elijah's encounter made him trust the Lord. And if you go into 2 Kings, in that first chapter, you see that Elijah learned that lesson well. For he learned when the king of Israel has fallen and he sends the messenger out to go ask of the prophets of Baal, Elijah comes and meets that messenger and gives him the message from God. And so what happens, the king sends out a captain and 50 men to bring Elijah to him. And Elijah no longer runs. He's no longer in fear. He's learned the lesson well. And he calls down fire from heaven. And then the second time it happens. And the king sends out another captain and another 50 men and God sends fire from heaven. The third captain is more aware and comes with that humble approach. But Elijah's encounter with God had made him trust and not to fear any longer. He learned how God cared and protected him. No need to fear. How about in your life? Have we learned that lesson? We don't need to fear. But sometimes we're not as useful as we'll become until we have sat under the juniper tree. If you've been under that broom tree and felt all alone and felt that no one else was there, we might recognize that we can be used of God now in greater ways because God has brought us through those crushing times when it just feels that it's impossible to go on. It is impossible for you, but it's not impossible for God. So our fear might lead us to a greater place of service. Our fear might lead us to a greater place of usefulness if we surrender. If we yield ourselves, for fear comes from living to please ourselves. That paralyzing fear, that crippling fear that brings defeat and gives way only in the victory of Jesus when we've submitted it to Him. The Scripture says, The righteous are as bold as a lion. Perfect love cast out fear. I'm going to just close and just ask, What are you doing here? What are you doing in your life? Is the life dominated with fear? Is the life dominated by just wondering, what am I going to do? How am I going to make it? 
Maybe you've been under the broom tree. You've been under that juniper bush and you felt all alone. Now you can be helpful and you can be useful to others that are feeling that response. To others that may be feeling fear and faithless. And you can give them the account that Elijah learned very well when he asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? We can ask ourselves, what are you doing here? What's our purpose? What's our place? Do you know Christ is Lord and Savior? Have you been born again? That's the number one prerequisite that the Lord asks. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. If you want to hear Paul in person and are in the Stockton, California area, we invite you to join us at Landmark Missionary Baptist Church, 301 East Alpine Avenue. That's near the University of the Pacific. He brings the Bible message every Sunday at 11 a.m. and other times as listed. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.